Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Hi, everybody. This is uh, a very special conversation with one of my newer friends that I want to have an even stronger friendship with, especially after this conversation. There's so much that we both do in our work that is strengthening leaders and organizations, especially around our thinking, our bias, our narratives, our language. And so I'm really excited to introduce to you today, Christina Blacken. Christina, welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn. Please introduce yourself. Let the listeners get to know you a little bit. Yeah, so thank you for having me here. Also, I love the name of this podcast. (laughs) We definitely need more people to communicate like they give a damn. But I run a company called The New Quo, which is a leadership development and diversity, equity, and inclusion consultancy. And really my passion and mission is to help people to adopt new stories and new practices around power and leadership that lead to more equitable, innovative, and trusting relationships within the workplace and additionally outside of it. And it was really inspired by my life story, by working in corporate America, by a lot of things that essentially led to coming to a personal and academic and professional understanding of how narrative affects bias and behavior and how it's both a tool that we can use to build deeper understanding and bonds and communication and practices if we become more conscious of it. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm curious more about how you got into this work. So kind of share with us your career path and how you came to be where you are today. Yeah, so I was raised in Utah, which is always a shock and a surprise to people. They're like, how'd your family end up out there? But they were part of the Great Migration. And we're one of few families that decided Chicago ain't it, New York ain't it, mm, Utah sounds like the place. <laughs> so they ended up out there mostly because of the train at the time provided more opportunities for jobs. It was safer for black families. There was just a little bit less lynching and um, some of the overt violence that was happening towards black families at the time. And they moved from Memphis, Tennessee. And so I was raised there and around a lot of institutions and communities that use narrative to essentially teach what we should value and what we shouldn't when it came to ethics and morals and identities. And I got to experience that up close and personal, this sort of idea of othering and narrative making that can dehumanize a group and sort of justify discriminatory practices. And so seeing that up and close and personal sort of motivated me to want to create a career around social issues and impact and helping us to be more understanding, compassionate, and open-minded about groups who are different from ourselves. So I ended up moving to New York for college. I was in upstate New York in the cold at Cornell and was there for four years and loved it. And when I graduated, I was like, you know, do I go back to the mountains of Utah and all of that, or do I stay here? And so I ended up thinking, I really wanted to make an impact in my career, so let me go to the law world. I ended up getting a position at a really prestigious law firm in New York City as sort of my stepping ground into the city because I thought 
one way to change the world is, you know, the laws that we operate under and I can learn that world and make it more equitable and fair and just for different groups. But then I learned that there was some pretty toxic hierarchy structures in that world that just didn't align with my values. So I then kind of went on a multi-year journey of how do I make a social impact and use the tools that I feel passionate about, particularly story, to do that. So I ended up in the nonprofit field for a while using narrative to motivate hundreds of thousands of teens to volunteer on social issues. Then I ended up in the media world and essentially was learning how does media and narrative affect what people perceive, what they believe, what they take action on, how they you know, treat other people. And from all of that experience, I was learning, wow, narrative is this powerful tool that we typically understand as a marketing thing or to sell people more Nikes, but we're not understanding how it impacts relationships, how it impacts power dynamics inside of an organization or group. So that curiosity started with these jobs and I would sort of look into the social science and the research and experiment with campaigns and started to build my own frameworks and talks and built a side business teaching narrative as a tool for social change and relationship building. And then eventually went on my own full time in 2019 after I saved up what I called my FU fund because I'm like, make my own thing, save up some money to do it. And that's when I went full time into teaching narrative frameworks and structures mostly inside of the corporate sort of sphere. So people could build better teams, better culture, better goals that center everybody's needs. Because ultimately my my passion is understanding that the narratives we're really taught about power and leadership are pretty destructive. So this idea that some people deserve to have their needs met, resources, to have a voice, to take up space, and some people don't lead to lots of negative outcomes. And they are the driving goals and visions that most organizations have been designed on. So until we question those really rigid and unconscious and un inexplicit stories about power and leadership, we can't really build innovative or creative organizations that are adaptable to the future or serve the most people. And so at this time, I've trained around 12,000 leaders across nine industries. Most of that's been through digital courses, webinars, consulting, public speaking, and some obviously uh, any kind of forum where people can learn how to take communication tools and have better conversations and better outcomes with each other is really the things I've been building. So yeah, it was kind of a winding journey, but in the center of it was always, I've experienced discrimination on so many different levels from an accurate narratives and from snap judgments that the brain will use to fill in what we believe about people and how can we disrupt that process so that we can have more trust and more innovation and we desperately need it right now more than ever before. Yes, absolutely. I was about to say amen uh, to that. <laughs> I'm the mic, but no, because it's a podcast, so don't drop it. <laughs> oh, this is so good. So good. I, I am so excited about this conversation on so many levels. And I want to actually start with something that is quite, it seems basic, but sometimes I think we kind of leapfrog over a basic and then assume that we all understand and interpret the same terms that we step over all the time um, as if we're all on the same page. And so if you don't mind kind of going back and, and just talking about narrative as a definition, what is narrative? So narrative really is a journey which has a series of events and characters and usually has a theme or a value at the end. So it's some sort of transformative journey that's then put into um, a beginning, middle and end. So you just saying I went to the grocery store isn't necessarily a narrative, but if there was a journey, some sort of value set that's being pushed, some sort of transformation, that's typically a narrative. And there's different types. You know, we have historical narratives of 
the meaning and the events that we attach to past experiences. We have cultural narratives about what we should value. And, you know, the damsel in distress is a character trope that could pop up in a narrative, for example, or the idea of being a rigid sociopathic person to be able to take power. That's a narrative you might see play out all the time in movies when we're talking about good and evil and heroes and enemies. So narrative is really an interesting way that our brains function because for whatever reason, our brains are designed to pattern match and find meaning and to connect dots. And so we're constantly constructing narratives of our personal experiences to store them as memory. And that's for quicker memory recall, being able to make snap decisions with immense amounts of information, being able to fill in the blanks when you first meet somebody. So your brain is constantly constructing narrative. I actually ask this question in most of my trainings where I show a picture of a, a ripple in a body of water. And I ask people what they think caused that ripple. And everyone immediately jumps to a story. Oh, it was a little kid, skipped a pebble across the pond. It was in the backyard. Like there's all these things they start filling in from their own personal experiences and past narratives that they've heard related to that event. And so your brain is constantly doing that pretty much with every new event or experience, person, place, or thing that you meet. So it's an automatic process that we're not really conscious of, but it really is the predominant way that we communicate and think and store information. Okay. We're level setting around narrative because I think it's, it's a bit um, thrown around where we don't really step back and think it through of what is a narrative, what isn't. And then uh, I, I want to go a little deeper on narratives before I let you go on that particular point. <laughs> a couple more things. You use a methodology called narrative intelligence. So, can, you know, help us understand what that is. And if you could, you know, provide us kind of an example of it in, in use. Yeah. So that term was coined, I think, around the 1960s by AI researchers. And they were trying to figure out how do we get algorithms and robots to organize information in narrative format in the same way that human brains do. So they called that narrative intelligence. It's the ability to attach patterns and essentially stories to events that are happening around you and to then take action with those particular stories. And most people have two types of narrative intelligence. You have an internal narrative intelligence, which is your ability to understand how your own internal personal stories and ideas affect your behavior day to day. And then there's external narrative intelligence, which is the ability to construct stories to motivate people to go do things. So an example of this is there was a study that was done on pesticide use in Vietnam. And I think it was by the International Rice Research Institute, IRRI, but Google that and correct me if that's wrong. But essentially, they were trying to figure out how do we get people who are in farmland to, to use less pesticides so that they don't damage plants and there's all these environmental implications. So they created a soap opera. And the soap opera was a fictional story about rice farmers. So it centered the rice farmers' lived experience, their ups and downs, the things that they're experiencing in their communities and with their families. And woven into that narrative was the benefits of not using pesticides in these narratives. It was 104 episodes and they saw a significant reduction in pesticide use after individuals were exposed to this 104 episode soap opera. So that's your external narrative intelligence is knowing how do I connect with what the brain craves, what people desire emotionally and then motivate them to take a new behavioral action. And most people understand that from marketing or sales, which is pretty much narrative making. You're convincing people of a thing that they might need for a pain point usually couched in some sort of narrative that's entertaining or surprising or humorous or, you know, anger making, whatever it is. But most people don't realize that that process is also happening interpersonally, not just from institutions to you, 
but the stories you attach to your family, the stories you attach to your friends, the stories you attach to large philosophical concepts like love and safety and hope, those have all come from different narratives that you've been exposed to. And there's really five key areas that most people's narratives are shaped from. It's politics, academic institutions, your families of origin, religious institutions, and sometimes in a separate way, like historical um, institutions. So individuals outside of just academia who specifically focus on how we're telling the stories of history and what that means for present power dynamics. So those kind of key areas really shape deeply what someone believes, the set of stories in their brain that they're pulling from to make assumptions, to jump to conclusions, to you know, figure out what they value and what they should build in terms of goals. And we're all doing that process, whether we're conscious of it or not. You're reminding me of something that my girlfriend is studying in her graduate work uh, to become an LMFT, licensed marriage family. And what is it? Family therapy. therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Long acronym. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's why I advocate for inclusive language around acronyms. Um, <laughs> and narrative is one of the, uh, the approaches that is used in therapeutic uh, scenarios, which is quite powerful because it's all about the stories that we tell ourselves of what happened to us. There's the interpretation of the of our experience of something that has happened and the kind of information that we're uh, that we are surrounding ourselves with and what is being reaffirmed. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I love that you also study power dynamics as it relates to narrative. So please speak to the power of narratives and how narratives are actually forms of power. Yes, they are significant because they're the one tool. So on a neuroscience level, they're the one communication tool that immediately taps into certain things in your brain that affect your decisions. So one of them is different hormones like oxytocin, dopamine, cortisol. When you're making decisions, your body immediately has hormonal reactions to them, right? So if you feel oxytocin, trust is immediately increased. And the more you trust something, the more you'll actually do it. Whether it's true or not, if you trust it, you're more likely to do what it says. And so trust is the sort of gateway to getting people to do certain decisions. Dopamine feels good. We like to do things that are pleasurable, rightfully so, because they feel good. So a narrative essentially feels great. It might feel affirming or reassuring, or make you laugh, or feel pleasure, or escape, whatever that thing is, that is power, because that is something that we crave as a fundamental human need. And then cortisol holds our attention, especially right now with the crazy amounts of information that we are constantly inundated with, with social media, email, our news cycle, being able to hold somebody's attention enough to get the information to them, storytelling is one of the quickest ways to do that. So all three tools are, are, are three elements of storytelling are crazy influential and powerful. And we see this play out the most if you think about our political sphere right now in terms of how people talk about groups, who deserves power, who doesn't, um, little tropes and stereotypes, stereotype stories that are pushed forward as to who should be visible and seen and have rights, who should not. And so that's what's also the downside of it because storytelling can be used as a tool of division, as a tool of othering, as a tool of dehumanizing And so we need to be very cautious and intentional with how we construct stories about people and identity. And most of our beliefs about identity, so race, gender, class, sexuality, physical ability, religion, all those things come from cultural, historical, and personal narratives. 
they're not just you don't just wake up one day as a baby and like have all these set narratives about the world is something that you're conditioned under and so i think that's important for people to understand and with my clients what i get them to do is self-reflect do writing exercises and ask the right what i call questions of curiosity to pull, pull those narratives up so what are these early stories and experiences or even books podcasts movies tv that influence what you think so an example for myself, when I was growing up in Utah, there were very few stories about people who were black achievers, inventors, academics, makers. They were just completely erased. It wasn't that they didn't exist. My academic institution did not include them. And so I had to go out of school, out of my way to learn about people who look like me, who had achieved great things, who had contributed to history, who had pushed society forward. And so that changed my perspective of what I'm potentially able to achieve. And I would read books like Invisible Man, which would teach about the idea of what is it like to feel invisible in a society that doesn't value you? And when I was a kid, I didn't really understand analogies. So I thought he was literally invisible, like, like supernatural. It took yeah. me like three quarters of the way. But, oh, it's a metaphor. I'm like, OK, I get it. But either way, these early books shaped my perspective of my identity. And if I hadn't been exposed to certain narratives about Black achievement and history, I probably would have had a much more negative perspective of my ability, my identity, my culture, my community, because the narratives that were pushed to me were inaccurate or missing pieces or chapters or just completely not telling the full story. And so I think that practice is a hard one because most of us have a kind of automatic pattern of how we ingest story and then how we act on it. But I think the more that we can talk about it and become conscious of it, the more that we can broaden our set of narratives that we are pulling from when we are confronted with uncertainty and change, because that's when it matters the most. And that's when we typically see the most destructive behaviors when it comes to narrative making. When people are under pressure and uncertainty, mm -hmm. they, they reach for stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And stereotype stories are learned through the things that you consume and the experiences that you've had. And so that's the thing I'm actually writing. I'm writing a book about this, um, essentially, how do we build deeper trust by expanding the set of stories that we're pulling from and slow down that process of bias in the brain. And I think that is something we need to talk about more because most of our problem right now is how we deal with uncertainty is jumping to inaccurate stories about the world and about people. First of all, I'm thrilled to hear you're writing a book. I want it. Put me on the pre-order <laughs> list and uh, I will definitely help promote it. Um, I'm so glad you're doing that. Uh, it is not for the faint of heart to write a book, speaking from personal experience, and I only wrote half of a book. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember you told me about it. Um, I, I, I would like to put everything that you just talked about in the context that we are in right now as of this recording, which is, it is just a few days ago, Hamas attacked Israel. Israeli military has declared war and there is a tremendous amount of trauma i mean i mean i i the the amount of death and violence that is occurring right now across this region is unprecedented and so please walk us through how the narrative around the complexities of the, in the historical context of that region, I'm not asking you to be like an expert, a geopolitical expert. It's not, a, not about that. It's more about like that, the narratives that we're seeing, especially as it relates to what you talked about 
in crisis situations and stressful situations, we tend to go to stereoty- st- stereotypes. We go to tropes um, to reaffirm it's a, you know uh, our bias or whatever it may be. Um, something I'm talking about with clients as it relates to this is oftentimes in narratives, we're looking for good guys and bad guys. Yes. And oftentimes we put our organization as a hero, whether we mean to or not. This is not a time for that. This is not a time for that. So please, please talk to us about what you, you know, all of your studies and everything that you do around narrative and what we can be doing in the midst of the narrative that is being propagated uh, through multiple uh, news channels, uh, access on social media, uh, et cetera. And how do we, how do we become more critical thinkers and mitigate this bias and be able to be the communicators that we need to be in our best light as our character is always asked for in crisis situations? Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate you bringing this up because it is all in the context of the world that we're living in, which is, so so complicated right now there's been so much tragedy and violence and loss and fear and it's just reaching different breaking points and i first just want to hold space for anyone right now who's directly impacted by this conflict who has lost family friend and loved ones all the narratives aside that alone is just so tragic people are like i don't really even care what the stories are i just want people to be safe and be okay and i'm afraid people are missing so i think just space for grief is incredibly important. And right now what we're dealing Mm -hmm. with, so I posted this recently on my social media, but there are about 200 cognitive biases that the brain uses for a couple of reasons. One is to simplify information, to make quick decisions, to find meaning within chaos and to have memory recall. And so a lot of those biases, what ends up happening is we have quick decisions and snap judgments that are inaccurate and wrong. And there's a couple that are most pervasive that we're seeing in the media right now talking about this conflict. One of them being we are letting go of specifics to make generalities. We are reaching for stereotypes to fill in the blanks about individuals and groups, especially if we don't have a history with them. And we also are easier to point out character flaws in others than than in ourselves. So what's happening, especially in the media, which has an incentive to report quickly, not always accurately, not always with a lens of power dynamics or balance, but with urgency with controversy and with stirring up the most attention possible. They have an incentive that has been designed in our media system right now to say the most histrionic extreme thing possible to get attention and clicks and marketing dollars. That is just the truth. So we are not getting nuanced Mm -hmm. reporting. We are not getting a full story of what's happening on the ground. We're not having accurate historical narratives about what's led up to this conflict. We're not having accurate balanced nuance of people on both sides who've been in this fight for a long time, who are part of the conversations and the movements around how do we actually find resolution? They're being silenced for pick a side or or else. So I think what we need to do is slow down because right now we've never in any time in society have had to digest horrific tragedy from a minute to minute basis and come up with a nuanced, accurate, unbiased opinion within two minutes. People are reading Twitter and immediately acting like geopolitical experts. They see one tweet and they're like, that's it. They see one video and they're like, that's it. And so that is very dangerous because people who are in power, these are the people we should put our ire towards because the casualties on either side, they don't care about. They care about hoarding more power. 
And essentially anybody who doesn't even want this fight to happen to begin with deserves safety, no matter what side of the conflict they're on. People in power have an incentive to make an enemy and to humanize that enemy to gain more money and resources and all of that. So I think people need to keep that in mind. Most people who are uh, orchestrating and designing war are never at the forefront of it. They're never harmed by it. They are physically and financially removed from it, while all the other people are casualties that didn't even get to choose a lot of the time. So I want people to take it back who are saying these broad generalizations about different groups and what they stand for and what they are and all of that to slow down because that is what people who are in power, who are using violence and zero-sum games to their own personal gain, not for the gain of their community, for their own personal gain. They are the ones who are essentially benefiting from people moving with bias, moving with generalities, moving with dehumanizing and being angry, moving with this idea that there are good guys and bad guys, there's good cops, bad cops, hero and enemy. And in any war, okay, so for example, people brought up 9-11 as as a, a comparison. And first, I don't think comparing different geopolitical issues is actually that productive because there's different contexts and histories and issues that were happening with them. But that essentially is an example of what not to do. Because when there is an attack here and us dehumanizing and then killing tons of civilians in response was something that a lot of Americans did not want or essentially being xenophobic and pushing these anti-Muslim ideas and arguments in response, a lot of people did not want that. So this idea of, hey, look at what we did in response to you know this angry thing it's just not a good narrative to be pushing forward as a resolution. And I know there are people who will disagree with me. There are people who are very angry and upset and afraid and confused. But at the end of the day, our cycles of violence do not stop unless we start to have more nuanced conversations, more accountability, more ownership of what's led to this point and ways that we can try to find resolution that doesn't lend itself to more violence. Because guess what? Most of the time, more violence doesn't actually fix anything. It just encourages more violence. We've, that's why we see the cycle again and again and again. It's eye, eye for an eye. Everyone is left with no eyes. It doesn't actually help everybody see better. But I think it's hard to get out of that process because a lot of people have this fundamental belief that humans are violent. We're in a hierarchy and there's just some people at the top and some at the bottom. And that's just the way it is. And in fact, we're a very adaptable species that doesn't have to operate this way. There's been choices in systemic and societal design that's led to it. I am not an expert in this region. And I wouldn't claim I would be, but I am an expert in understanding how narrative is used to perpetuate further violence, to dehumanize groups, to make people fear and be mad and, and angry at each other. That leads to only more violence. So I think people need to slow down what they're saying, what they're digesting, and they really need to ask themselves the question, who suffers with this narrative and who benefits? What are the power dynamics that are being highlighted or not? Are we moving towards resolution? Are we moving to further division with this story? Because every story has an undercurrent incentive for who is writing it, why they are writing it, and where it is coming from. And I think people need to be more critical of that. We need to be more critical of what we're seeing, what we're reading, and what we're reposting, because so many times it's inaccurate, it's wrong, and it's too black and white to represent the reality of what's happening. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I, I think you know a lot of us are going to gain a lot of ideas and affirmations, validations, but also an encouragement for that critical thinking. 
for example, something that is making its way through social media is looking at uh, news reports saying that people died in Gaza, but people are killed in Israel. So you're talking about nuance and how, you know, people are being positioned like there's as if the people in Gaza like chose to die, like they died. Um, and this kind of wording, you know, because uh, reminds me, honestly, of the media coverage around the murder of George Floyd. Yep. And a lot of organizations struggled of like, what do we do? What do we say? Obviously, we saw that happen. But the support internally for employees who were, you know, needing support and needing to know, does the organization, does my manager have my back? We're in a similar position, even if the uh, situation isn't happening on the United States soil, we're seeing a similar need. And it's between people, you know, who are perhaps in the same team, you know, and have ancestry or stories or, or uh, lived experience that is being revealed through what's happening in the region. And so my question to you is the narrative of, and, and, I, and I've seen news outlets, journalists, PR people struggle to say that George Floyd died, similar to what I was just saying with the, 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 the wording of died and killed, um, or, or are we honest that he was murdered, right? You know, so it's like inclusive language is call a thing a thing, right? Yep. And so if you can help us kind of, what did we learn anything? back, you know, and how we supported employees and the narratives that we were trying to be more accurate about in within organizations. I mean, obviously, I could do a whole podcast myself on this particular question, but I want to hear from you. <laughs> and what can we, um, you know, what can we, did we learn anything? Uh, and, and what can we do to help support our employees internally uh, in our workplaces? around the narrative. Yeah, I think one of the challenges is there are different needs in these moments. And then there are also different levels of education. Social issues is the one thing that we do not teach consistently across the board as a necessary knowledge base. Most people think they know about social issues just because they talk to their grandpa in their living room, right? They're like, yeah, I learned about the war and whatever, like whatever thing they learn from, you know, anecdotes and colloquial conversations. There are not that many people who are actually studying history, politics, economics, with a long view and with a broader perspective that's not just from the perspective of the oppressors or the people who won the wars or whatever that might be. So I think one of the challenges is we have different levels of education around social issues, which means we're coming with different um, perspectives to conversations. Some of us have like collegiate level understanding and some have kindergarten understanding. And so creating space for that and conversations is really challenging. On the other side of it, there's just pain. And sometimes regardless of who's right and wrong, pain needs space to be processed, to be held. People don't necessarily want to sit down. I gave this analogy today to a friend. If someone breaks their leg, the thing they're thinking about right now is the broken leg. And the person who's helping them, maybe they've broken both arms a month ago. And they're like, hey, but my arms has been broken. Like both of them. You thought it was bad, you had your leg broken. That person has their leg broken, doesn't really want to hear that right now. And so in the moment, like acute pain is really not the time to have the oppression Olympics or the back and forth about who's been more hurt and who hasn't. 
So I think what's most important is having a specific concerted goal in your conversations when you're holding space for these issues. So the goal might be, hey, if you're struggling with mental health stuff and you have loss right now, we have resources for you. Hey, if you want to find other people who are going through the same thing, we're creating a group for you to have space for that. Hey, if you want to learn more about this issue because you're really confused and you don't know much about it, we're getting three experts who've been in the issue for 30 years. Like pulling resources to allow people to get different needs met is important. Having a big old broad conversation where people say maybe harmful, ignorant, or inaccurate things leads to more distrust and silence. So I personally don't think it's actually that useful to just have a big old free-for-all space where people could do whatever they want. I do think acknowledgement of the issue supports to say, hey, we hear you, we see you, we love and care about you. We all know that you're dealing with different things and here are resources and support for what those things might be. There are people I know right now who have literally lost family members. Like, we don't even know where they are. We're not sure where their bodies are. That's serious and it's sad, regardless of what side they might be on, right? The thing they want to talk about is how do I find my family member? Not, is this right or wrong? And the politics, like, we need to figure out where that family member is. So I think people forget that the acute, immediate need of grief and loss is a different need than the social, political, and historical perspectives of these things. Both are important, but maybe they can't happen at the same exact time. Maybe they can happen in the same exact space. Maybe you make space for multiple things at multiple times. And that's also a bias the brain has. We do not, we do not do well with nuance and complexity. That's why our brains are oversimplifying things and using bias, 200 of them, to move through life as quickly as possible. And most of the time they're inaccurate, right? So we, it's hard for us to hold multiple truths at one time and be in the gray more. That's really difficult for a lot of people. That's why we have black and white thinking, good and bad big and skinny, gay and straight. Like we have all these binaries that aren't necessarily accurate to the real world experience for people. So I think, you know, I'm rambling, but long story short is we need to create space for multiple things and multiple needs. They don't have to happen simultaneously, but they do need to occur in a way that shows people that you're there and you care without creating more harm. And that is a delicate balance. And I think more people need to focus on the goals versus trying to prove who's right, who's wrong, who deserves humanity and space and peace and who doesn't. And during the Black Lives Matter movement, and what's interesting about that too is that's a movement that's not over. I mean, I think people forget that like the death of Black people is a daily occurrence and people are desensitized to it. Um, we see there's an example almost every week of someone being killed for absolutely no reason. They were jogging, they were sitting in their car, they were eating a snack. Like that is still happening. So I think even with this conflict, mm -hmm. there's been long term issues of violence for many, many years. It's reached a breaking point at this point right now. Um, but it's not a one and done thing. And I think people forget that these ongoing tragedies and how we talk about them, who gets space for their tragedies to be talked about, who doesn't, the language we use around them, that matters too. And there isn't, I think there are a lot of people who have a really hard time seeing outside of themselves and they care about an issue and it affects them directly. And I think that's a huge problem. It's how do you care for something, even if it's not your identity or even hasn't impacted you directly or how do you make sure that you're not only being super vocal and standing up when it's impacting your community? Because those things make a huge difference. And unfortunately, especially as a black woman, we're kind of seen in social movements. If you study history as the sort of like people who are going to continuously expend a lot of emotional, physical labor for everyone. That many times the movements that we're part of and we're pushing is for everyone's liberation. So if your definition and your movement of liberation does not include everybody, you are not a liberator. 
So if it's, I want to liberate me and my own and my group, and that's it, that's not liberation. Mm -hmm. I think people forget, they need to go back and study scholars and people who have been part of these movements and talking about it for a long time. Liberation is a process of everyone being free, not just some. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I was, um, somebody reached out to me on LinkedIn, said that they went to their manager um, and, you know, it's like, is there space? You know, it's like, I, I need support. It's somebody who is, who is impacted. And they had, they found out that some of their cousins have been called up from the reserves and are being sent to Israel. And, you know, she's not able to sleep, <laughs> you know, there's the, you know, it, and then the manager's response was, you know, the manager did ask her, you know, how are you? You know, how's your day or something? And she's like, well, not good. And my cousins have been called up. Um, I'm scared, you know, and I'm not sleeping. And the manager said, okay, understood. And then kept going. And so she's, she's not feeling the support, right? And so making that space, um, having that fear, when the Pulse tragedy happened in 2016, I was working internally, uh, and we put together an internal vigil. Uh, it was a virtual vigil, and I had people go into their conference rooms and be in community in the different offices across the country. And I brought in somebody who's gay. I'm, I'm a gay woman as well. So we had a member of the two members of the community, if you count me, leading this session, this virtual vigil, if you will. And there was, you know, conversation about it. And then we paused and allowed people to be in community with each other. Everybody muted. And so people can be within their conference rooms and be together and talk through things and ask questions in the chat. And it ended up being a really healing space or maybe not a healing, but a, a, a place to express. And it was, it didn't have any negativity. It was a place of, it was intended to be a safe space and it ended up being a safe space for people just to be. Because sometimes people just need somebody to be with them in, in it. You don't even have to say anything. It's just not being alone. The acknowledgement. Um, so thank you for all of this. And I really appreciate the work, uh, that you're doing and the support that you're providing. Um, so one of the main contingencies that you work with are leaders. So I want to ask you about what something that us as communicators are really running into a lot right now are these, these, the kind of the lean back kind of version of leadership around diversity, equity, and inclusion and social topics like, like what we're just talking about. They leaned in in 2020. They're leaning back right now in 2023 when we're recording. So when you're, you can kind of walk us through what you're seeing perhaps as patterns, uh, et cetera, around the narratives amongst leaders, like what is their headspace? What kind of narratives are they listening to and basing their decisions on? And what can we do as communicators to help them navigate through these times and help them? Well, I call it make leaders brave again. <laughs> we make leaders brave again. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think people for, 
forget that most social movements have what I call waves where it's sort of like a crest and then you have sort of the trough where it, it dies down and it comes back up again. I mean, we talk about George Floyd, but we had so many acute events like George Floyd before that, where there'd be a lot of information, a lot of rah-rah, a lot of prayers and things sent on social media and then no change made. And so I think that cycle is just part of, at this point as a species, how we operate around social change. So it's not surprising to me that there is a die down. At the same time, I think one of the issues with the DEI industry is the predominant conversation and goals that I've seen in it is about expanding representation of different identities within organizations, which is a good start, but that's not really a conversation about redesign, redesigning inequitable systems. It's sort of like, let's put more people into this inequitable system and hope it fixes itself. And so most people did that out of fear. So they're like, I'm afraid of public retribution. I'm afraid of consumers not liking the brand. So it was punitive. It was reactionary. And I think a lot of people reacted to George Floyd in the same way. They didn't want to be painted as racist or wrong or whatever. Um, but really, I think the future of DEI is about radical imagination and futurism, because if we're going to create a future that doesn't fall apart, we need to account for everybody's needs and create the best outcomes for the most people. Otherwise, we have an unstable system. We have an unstable society. There's all these incentives in terms of literal survival that require us to think about DEI as a practice of design and imagination and not just punitive reaction. So I think if leaders look at it as what are ways that we can create systems and experiences that bring everyone's unique strengths to the table? How do we get more voices to contribute to decisions? How do we adequately and fairly compensate everybody for their labor in a way that makes them feel loyal and committed to our mission? How do we make sure that our mission is mutually beneficial, not just for the small few at the top, but for everybody involved? So those questions can be answered and they're not impossible to solve, but it's changing the paradigm of what we think the goal of DEI is. For me, the goal of DEI is creating a future that is good for everyone, right? It's like everyone gets their basic needs met. Everyone feels respected and heard and seen. No one is being physically, emotionally, financially harmed on a regular basis for someone else's gain. That is what it should be about, not just, oh, we got a few people of a certain identity to this room. But if the room is trash and it's on fire, why won't we put the fire out in the room instead of throwing people <laughs> into a burning building? So for me, I'm like, DEI is not about setting more people inside a building that's on fire. It's building a fireproof building that can allow us to function better in the future when a new fire comes. So I think that's the challenge is how do we see this as a practice of being a transformational leader? That's what I talk about a lot is achieving status quo breaking goals through narrative and being a transformational leader. And it is a practice of reevaluating our relationships. Cause right now, if you think about most systems of inequality, it's a way of control. It's controlling what happens in this relationship, who gains and who doesn't, and if we operate from a zero-sum game, it creates a huge amount of distrust, which actually leaves us stuck. So that's why it's been hard to innovate on some of our issues, because if we don't trust each other, how do we collaborate? And DEI should be a practice of improving trust and improving innovation. And so if you talk to leaders and say, do you want a culture that trusts each other and collaborates? DEI is, is a practice. It's a principle of that. It's not just this punitive, ret retroactive thing you check off so you don't get sued. It's not. And if you're operating that way, you're missing out on the ability to innovate at your highest level and to be ahead of the pack as an organization. And there are some organizations that are leaning into this as system design and futurism, and there's some that aren't because they weren't committed to begin with. They were just doing it performatively because they're afraid of negative public perception. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes if the means gets to the same ends, fine. But I think 
Some organizations are only going to fall in line once it becomes extremely socially unpopular to not do it properly because of groupthink and all of that, how humans operate. No one wants to be a social pariah. So if you become the one organization that's not on board, it might be to your detriment. I think that will be a huge pressure. And we only need a certain concerted effort of group of a group to be able to make that movement happen, kind of like a snowball. So we don't need every organization to be at the tip top most uh, intentional and conscious around DEI. We just need a few, a concerted long-term effort together that then puts pressure on other organizations to see the benefits of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, I, I actually want to take some responsibility as a communicator uh, where we haven't truly understood and taken the time to understand what diversity, equity, and inclusion actually is, what that work actually is. Now, statistically, it's proven that most, especially internal communicators, but all communicators look like me, like the majority look like me. We don't have the personal and professional experience uh, that helped us see what DEI work actually was trying to do. But we understood it at a surface level to say, oh, this looks good. This feels good. Let's do this. Let's give checks out. Let's, let's do these things. Yeah. Let's change our logo to the rainbow in June, you know, whatever it may <laughs> <Right>. be. <laughs> so this, but this is a narrative that has caused damage to where it's being tested now in this latest, you know, trough that you were talking about when we came off the crest. Because my, my, my mentor talks about how, lin, how progress is not linear, it is a spiral. Yeah. So we're going back and around. So, but I am a perpetual optimist. Believe it or not, I hold firm and I hold that vision just like you of what DEI actually is about. And so making us as communicators more accountable to understanding what DEI is. When DEI now, when we use those terms, it's a trigger. Now it's a trigger for a lot of employees and it's causing division because of the different narratives that have made its way through our workforce outside our walls, now inside our walls. And it's forcing us to use other terms. And I'm encouraging communicators to use terms that are based on outcomes, which is forcing us to actually learn and understand what DEI work really is without the dependency and the crutch of just using the terms and saying that's enough because it's I not. Agree. I think also people forget that there is a process that happens every time when there is a social movement, that social movement is co-opted and painted as a negative thing that's going to create harm for people. So there are certain people in the public sphere who are suing organizations for diversity programs and targeting affirmative action and all these things. And really their goal is destruction and essentially keeping the status quo the same. It's not actually serving everybody. They are just feel like serving this particular group that has been historically and unequivocally underserved will take away resources that we feel entitled to not because they're losing anything, but because they feel like other groups do not deserve what they feel entitled to. So I mm -hmm. think the co-opting of language and changing it, I don't really care if we expand the terms, we can call it whatever we want to call it. At the end of the day, it's really motivating people to see the goals and why they're a benefit and not harmful to them. And I do think some people generally understand that and know that, but because they have a fundamental worldview that it's a zero-sum game that only some can win, they don't care. 
I don't think that's a lot of people. I think that's maybe like 10%, right? Like a small percentage. So I think a small percentage should not derail people so much to think that like, oh, if we do these things, we're going to get backlash. It's a certain group, no matter how you say it, slice it, dice it, all the different language you use for it are not going to be on board for it because they think it's a threat to their status quo. And because they like the status quo, no matter how destructive it is. So I think we don't need to appeal to the most hateful person in the room. I do think what we need to do mm-hmm. is sort of level set and give people guidance on how do you match values with behavior? Do you want a society that's safe? Do you want a society that's functional? Here are the behaviors you need to do to get there. That's really what we're striving for, right? Like, do you want a place where you trust the people you're around and aren't constantly afraid of violence and harm of some sort? These are the tools to get us there. I mean, most people, if you sat them down, do you want to feel safe? Would say, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or this is the do, I, do you want to trust people that you're around? Yeah. I mean, these are fundamental human needs that everyone actually would say absolutely. So knowing that these are tools to get you to that place is connecting those dots. And I think it is important for us as communication experts to connect the dots and to paint that narrative and story of here's how this work is beneficial to all. And here's how it's going to get you that fundamental need that you think is being taken away by this work. This is actually the fastest way to get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Being very, very clear in our narratives. And one of the ways that we employ narrative pretty consistently, especially for internal communications, is around employee storytelling. Um, whether it's tied to a cultural moment or it's a, uh, you know, talking about the safety program that we have, you know, internally, whatever our organization, you know, business kind of related employee storytelling uh, stories are about whatever. And what we talked about earlier of the power of narrative and how narrative can be power. When we're telling these employee stories, how do we make, how do we make sure that we are honest and accurate, that we're not are not performative in our employee stories. You cut out for a little bit there. Um, I just heard the M part of it, though. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay. Um, Yeah, I think the main thing, especially with employee stories, is to allow them to have some ownership of how the story is being built. I think there's a lot of taking people's stories out of context and pushing them forward without the the story that the person (laughs) comes from being an owner of it. And so being being able to co-collaborate on narratives is incredibly important. So it shouldn't be just one sort of centerpiece that gets to shape every single narrative and be the talking, walking representative for all things and all people. I think also, too, allowing uh, individuals to learn outside of employee stories, because I, I don't really love the idea of employees uh, leveraging their pain or marginalization to treat mm-hmm. each other. I think that can be actually really dangerous mm-hmm. and um, a huge lift and sort of burden on individuals. And there's so many other ways to improve empathy and to learn besides sort of the trauma porn of, of that, some of that. So I think it is that balanced nuance of when it makes sense in context, do the employees feel empowered to be part of creating that narrative? And then how is it shared strategically in a way that doesn't feel like, you know, exposing somebody's traumas is, is ultimately needed for someone else to feel any kind of empathy. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for that. Very tangible, practical applications of how we can be moving forward and doing better in our employee storytelling. Yeah, I, I often say, like, if somebody is, is willing to tell their coming out story, you know, we're recording this on National Coming Out Day, for example, it can be re-traumatizing. 
And so, first of all, if they're willing to tell the story, then you better validate it with some call to action. How are you as an organization? How are you know what you know whoever you're you're talking to? But there has to be change. There has to be like, how do we make things better uh, for you know Kim who just told her coming out story? Which mine mine is mine is hard for me to tell, but I've been telling it for 25 years. So I'm you know, and I'm purposefully wanting to educate by telling my story. But that's my job. That's not, you know, Susie in accounting, you know, telling her coming out. That's different, you know. (laughs) So you you cannot allow these stories, you know, be told in vain. You know, what are you doing and what are you asking of the reader to improve the situation to make that person be more safe? You know, it can be that simple. And it can be that powerful as well. Do not let their stories be told in vain. Exactly. So this podcast is called Communicate Like You Give a Damn. Share with me what you think it looks like, sounds like to communicate like you give a damn. I think the main thing is leaders and individuals who show a high level of self-awareness. And accountability, because communicating like you give a damn is understanding how your own perspectives impact what you say. Because I think anytime there are social issues, people are very quick to point. Like I, like I said, the bias before, we're very easy as humans to find the flaws in others, but not in ourselves. And so if you're able to own and say, here's what I know and don't know, and I'm working on that, I'm educating myself on it. You're not expecting others to fix it for you. And you're also making an effort and showing through your behavior that you're following up behind the narratives with concerted action, that shows that you give a damn. Actual genuine change shows that you give a damn. If someone tells you what they need and you say, okay, that's cute and don't make action on it, people will not trust you. And they will think that your communications are performative and for your own personal gain and not to actually create solutions. So I think mean what you say and then follow up what you say with consistency, follow through and accountability. Otherwise your credibility is in the toilet. So giving a damn means actually matching your words with action. Love it. Yeah, that transparency. We need to give ourselves permission around the vulnerability of like, you know, any CEO that's going to put something out, given what's going on in Israel and Palestine, for example, and saying, I, I, I know this is a complicated history. Like, and, and this is, you know, and be, be advised by the voices who do have the experience. Like you don't go out on your own but you also demonstrate your own vulnerability and limitations and understanding what's going on, but then, you know, present the opportunities to increase that knowledge and understanding and be there for the acute need to your point earlier. So how can people get in touch with you and continue to uh, follow you, learn from you, hire you, (laughs) get your book when it comes out? Absolutely. Yeah. If people are looking for training, public speaking, consulting, or online courses, they can contact me at Christina at the new quo.com, which is T H E N E W Q U O.com. That's also my website, the new quo.com. Um, so yeah, find me there. I'm on the social medias. I'm on the interwebs. I have lots of different, I have a podcast and content and all that on my site, as well as information on how you can collaborate with me. And thank you for this conversation. I think it's so powerful and important and it's going to be a continuous marathon of figuring out how do we change paradigms and behaviors and beliefs in the same sort of vein. Cause all three things need to really change for us to be able to create the future that we hope to see, which is one that benefits everybody and creates safety and security for everyone. Thank you. 
very much. And I look forward to continuing to work and collaborate with you as well. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Okay. So what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.